Welcome back, everyone, and good day. Today is Monday, September 12th, 2022, the day after our 21st anniversary and commemoration of the 2,977 Americans who were killed on 9-11. And uh, today is a good day to reflect on where we're at and holding people accountable for that, because there is a news story that came out yesterday, ironically, from Fox News regarding the status of the 9-11 masterminds at Guantanamo Bay. And well, let's start out today's podcast, today's Ed Morrissey Show podcast with this issue, because I think it's important to take a quick look, if you will, at a process that has gone on far too long, has gotten far too much interference from Congress, and has gotten far afield of what actually took place 21 years ago. Uh, we have five defendants who were the masterminds of the 9-11 attacks on uh, Americans uh, at the World Trade Center, Pentagon, and uh, also Shanksville, Pennsylvania, where the heroes of Flight 93 uh, tried to take back control of the airplane and managed to make sure that uh, the terrorist plans for it were thwarted. Uh, we remembered that um, that heroism yesterday, and there was a number of commemorations yesterday, and um, and as there should be every single day, we call it Patriots Day now, and we've been calling it that for quite a long time, uh, in memory, really, of the people of, of Flight 93 who were really the first counteroffensive in the new war on terror. And regardless of whether you think that the war on terror has been mismanaged at times, has gone in the wrong directions at the time, at times, uh, whether we have, uh, whether we targeted things correctly and, uh, and calculated our investment in it correctly. What remains is that there was a cadre of people who decided that they wanted to, wanted to murder thousands of Americans. They were hoping to murder a whole lot more than they actually did. And we caught them. And we have held them now for, in some cases, 18, 19 years, some cases a little shorter. They've been at Guantanamo Bay ever since. And the United States has been spinning its wheels on what, what it's supposed to do with these people. You've had members of Congress get involved. You had Congress itself get involved in this, trying to lay out a, a, a parallel civilian justice uh, system or just to force it into the civilian justice system, rather than treat it what it was, which was a declaration of war by a uh, transnational group that decided that they wanted to uh, murder Americans, to de declare war on us. And they had declared war on us. They'd actually attacked uh, military targets like the USS Cole, diplomatic targets like the uh, embassies in Africa in 1998, uh, these uh, these were a, this was a group of Al Qaeda was a group of terrorists that had been conducting war operations against the United States for several years prior to 9/11, and it was only at 9/11 that we woke up to the fact that we were actually at war. And these people should have been dealt with in wartime terms long, long ago. The military tribunal system that we used in Nuremberg was perfectly uh, was was perfectly useful in this case. That was what the Pentagon initially wanted to do with these um, with these defendants and the other ones that were at Guantanamo Bay. But the United States has this idea that they can fight a war on terror by making it into a, uh, a law enforcement exercise. And this was the mindset that we had prior to 9-11. And we've gone right back into that mindset. And now, 
As a result, the Pentagon, according to Fox News yesterday and CBS's uh, Catherine Herridge, who's a really excellent national security reporter, um, used to be at Fox News, in fact, um, but now at CBS, is confirming that the Pentagon is opening plea deal negotiations with these um, with these defendants, these detainees, um, as a as a means of getting this thing finally off our plate, basically, is what this is. After 21 years, the Pentagon really just wants to get past this. Deborah Burlingame was interviewed by CBS News. She's outraged by this. She's one of the uh, chief spokespeople for the families of the victims of 9-11 and uh, talked about her brother being killed in um in, in the 9-11 attacks and has always has been an activist and spokesperson ever since for 20, 21 years. She's really held the light up to this and and tried to get people to engage in this. I'm a little surprised that people aren't even more outraged than they are hearing this. I think a lot of people are tired of the entire effort and wanted to put it behind them. And I understand that. But Al-Qaeda isn't putting it behind them. And if we cut some sort of deal that eventually lets these people loose, they will not have put it behind them either. In fact, any plea deal that results in any possibility that they will ever be released during their natural lifetime will be seen as a victory uh, by the defendants themselves, certainly, but also by Al-Qaeda and other transnational terrorist groups. Uh, it will be seen as a form of weakness. It will be seen as America is tired and we can be pushed around. Uh, again, regardless of whether or not it was a good idea to get out of Afghanistan, and you can go back and forth on that in several different ways, uh, these are the people that actually murdered Americans, that actually plotted to murder Americans, that um, who who are undeniably guilty, even if there was issues with, you know, the enhanced interrogation uh, tactics that were adopted in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 in order to prevent another massive terrorist attack that Al-Qaeda was hoping to commit. So we're not really talking about justice in terms of getting a plea deal. What we're talking about is closure. And Catherine Herridge actually makes a, a very good point about this. And so does Deborah Bur Burlingame. Uh, is that we don't want closure. Closure isn't what we want. What we want is justice. And what we want to do is set an example that says we are not going to tolerate this. If you go to war with us, we will go to war with you. Not we will treat you like some uh, gangster in a um, in an American city and plea deal just so be, just just because you're inconvenient to us at this time. That is a signal of weakness. It is a it's a very disturbing. Uh, development in this case. It's not one that, uh, I mean, certainly one that you could foresee. I, I think it was almost inevitable that the Pentagon would try to do this, but it is something that Congress really should take a step back and say, look, we need to, we need to restore the normal military tribunal process so that the Pentagon can actually get this thing over with and, and have these defendants handled in the manner that they should be handled. Uh, which is either life without parole or execution. These are not. This is not a, a this is not a civil justice issue. This is a wartime issue, and the further we get away from this, the more we keep forgetting that, and we forget that at our peril. And it is incredibly important that we highlight this and talk about this and make sure that the Pentagon and this administration knows that, that out, any outcome 
that allows the, the core 9-11 plotters to ever see the light of day outside of a prison is a huge mistake. It is a dangerous mistake, and it's going to cost American lives in large numbers. They will come back, they will do it again, and they will be even more encouraged by this. It will be a victory for them. This is not the type of victory that we need to be handing out, especially in the wake of our um, disgraceful exit from Afghanistan. It is a very, very bad idea. Lots of other things in the news today, and I just want to take a moment here, now that we've gotten that out of the way, to talk about our newest staff member, David Strom, is a longtime friend of mine, has been doing some great work for the Taxpayers League in Minnesota. He's worked on uh, political campaigns. He's worked for 501c3s. Uh, he's done a lot of writing in the background for a lot of these groups. And so we're going to ask David to step out into the limelight. And David's very excited about this. David's very, very policy heavy. But what he really wants to concentrate on is culture. And so I think we're really going to have a, a really nice blend with David. Uh, he's got two posts up. By the time we've already um, put this up, he had a third in he has a third in reserve that I will schedule for later today. It will probably already be up by the time you see this. But uh, he is he wrote about 9-11, uh, about the idea that uh, from some Democrats over the weekend that uh, January 6th was the equivalent or worse than 9-11. And uh, David has a very passionate piece about that. Uh, and then he's got another one up. There's a little bit more fun. Kamala Harris can't even gaslight well based on her conversation with Chuck Todd. And, uh, and, and David, I think, skewers her expertly on those lines expertly uh but he's our new he's our new full-time contributor he is going to be writing for us uh every single day of the week and he joins karen townsend as our um as a staff contributor we call them contributing editors i mean you can call titles or titles he's 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 our new employee and he's going to be great and i hope that you're really going to enjoy him uh Dwayne has a new vip post up today by the way he's actually going to be writing a series of vip columns on the pros and cons of the various different potential gop nominees for president in 2024 uh he's starting out with i i have him starting out with ron DeSantis. And then either later this week or next week, Donald Trump. He's got that column already written, but I wanted to go with Ron DeSantis first, just because I was a little bit of a changeup. I wanted to see, um, I wanted to see how that was. Next week could be Donald Trump. That should be really interesting. Pros and cons for Donald Trump. And you'll see when uh, Dwayne Generalismo Patterson gets into this that he's really hoping to be a uh, sort of an impartial, objective um, uh, arbiter of the pluses and minuses of each candidate. And that's going to prepare us to make a, a, a good, wise, rational choice in 2024. And may as well go ahead and start talking about that now because everybody's talking about it anyway. Uh, he's also got a couple of other things in the hopper for VIP. And hopefully you've had a chance to uh, watch my VIP um, conversation, my hour-long video presentation with Adam Baldwin, the Amiable Skeptics, which we are going to, in the future, split into two halves. And so we'll post them at two different times during the week, probably Thursday and Friday or maybe Thursday and Monday, um, because it's so deep and there's just so much to unpack when I talk with Adam about um, various different issues. That hour-long um, hour presentation Maybe a little too much to to chew on, so we're gonna we're gonna do it in two episodes. Hopefully, you guys are really going to enjoy that. 
If you haven't already signed up to be a VIP member, I'm hoping that that convinces you. We've got more VIP stuff coming too. Uh, I'll be working with uh, some friends in the Town Hall universe to produce some new and interesting VIP content. Um, and Beach Wellborn, again, I think I've mentioned Beach in my in my last um, in my last podcast, but Beach Wellborn uh, is um, is doing lots of great writing right now. She's got a new thing up. Something is rotten in the state of Am- or in, in the city of Amsterdam. Uh, <laughs> It's actually a really fun one, I and I, I hope you enjoy that. The other big news story, of course, this weekend, this is the one that really was driving a ton of interest, is the Russian, the apparent Russian collapse in Kharkiv Oblast and really in the whole northeastern section of their footprint in Ukraine. Uh, this happened very rapidly. Uh, the Ukrainians started working on a counteroffensive uh, either September 5th or September 6th. I've been working in, in, in real terms. And we had long talked about the idea that the Russians probably could only sustain themselves through the month of September with, before they ran out of men and material, you know, effective men and effective material. Men are still there and they've got material there, but it isn't effective any longer because the Ukrainians have better weapons. They've learned better tactics and they've been able to, um, they've been able to call up more men for their own fighting forces. And for six months, uh, a little over six months, maybe they've been on the defensive, mostly on the defensive. Well, they switched over to offense last week and it didn't take long for that line to collapse. Uh, the Ukrainians made a few pokes in the line, the line collapsed it fell back so far that they have recovered. Now, as as of um, this recording, they have recorded somewhere around 3,000 square kilometers of land. There is a report today that in, in, the, in that northeast part of the Kharkiv Oblast that they have pushed the Russians all the way back across the Russian border and that Ukrainian troops have reached that border. Uh, what the problem there for the Russians is, is that they've also captured Izium, and, and prior to that, uh, Kupiansk. And those are two major railheads that, this, that the Russians absolutely had to have to keep um, supplying not just their efforts in Donetsk, but also uh, the efforts around Kherson and the efforts to hold on to the Crimean Peninsula. All of that was dependent on rail because the Russians don't move very well on roads. Uh, you know, the Ukrainians really missed an opportunity in late February, early March, with that 20-mile uh, convoy that was stuck on the roads, they didn't have the forces or the tactics to really go after it. They could have wiped out uh, a lot of Russian men and material had they been able to attack that line. The Russians were able to eventually extract it back out and move it back around to the south uh, for their um, for their offensive operations, which sort of which started stalling out around June, and. Now, the Ukrainians really have momentum in this area. And the, they are still actually still counterpunching around Kherson, which means that the Russians are essentially fighting in, in, on both sides of what might end up being a pocket. Um, the, the Ukrainians might end up being able to reduce that. And they may have already cut off a, a, enough lines of communication to where the Russians simply can't defend against it. Uh, this is, uh, this could be a disaster for the Russian, for Russian military. This could be an absolute disaster for the Russian military, and they can't afford any more disasters. And so while we were watching this, we were watching uh, over the weekend, and really this started on Saturday, and, you know, I'm mostly am writing the headlines now 
on the weekend. So I was throwing these things up in the headlines as they were going along. And I know that readers were really responding to this. This was a, a, a topic of great interest. Jazz wrote about it over the weekend as well, uh, about how this was unfolding. I think I believe I wrote something on Saturday morning myself. And this is stunning. This is a stunning reversal of six months of Russian uh, Russian advances and then, and then Russian um, defenses, I guess you could say, you know, Russian, you know, Russian occupation. Uh, this is not the type of thing that happens in a regrouping as Moscow is calling it. Now, the, the big, two big questions arise from this. One is, what does Moscow do about this? They don't really have any way of replacing the men that are on there without doing a draft. And a draft would be enormously unpopular at home. In fact, it'd be so unpopular <laughs> that it would start uh, causing people to ask questions about the propaganda lines they've been fed for the last six months about what the Russians are actually doing in Ukraine. Um, and the second thing is, is does this prompt Putin to, uh, to unveil a tactical nuke as an attempt to get the Ukrainians to stop and accept some sort of partition uh, that sacrifices the Donbass and um, Crimea. And my guess is, is that if Putin starts to reach in that direction, you're going to see people in Moscow um, react to that. Uh, I think that his position, the disasters that are unfolding right now have weakened his position enough to where he's really stuck now. He can't, he can't concede defeat, but he can't try to uh, nuke his way to victory either. Because either one of those things will probably mean that he's going to have his throat cut. Uh, he's going to have to find some way to dance his way out of this. Frankly, I don't even see what that is at the moment. As long as Russian troops are running from the fight and every single report we have now shows that they're abandoning, the, abandoning their equipment, they're abandoning their uniforms, they're trying to change into civilian clothes so they can make a run for the Russian border and hopefully get back home again. They are not falling back in, in, uh, in, in an orderly retreat or a, you know, a reconnaissance to the rear, which was, you know, the, the, um, you know, the uh, I guess the polite term for retreat. It's not a reconnaissance to the rear. This is a route. They're running. They're on the run. They're abandoning everything that they've got. They're fleeing in, at least in that section around Kharkiv. And that is the type of thing that will create a panic. And it will create all sorts of friction in those areas. And what I mean by friction is you've got people who are running back to Russia. You've got both military and civilians trying to exit that area civilians that were russian sympathizers russian collaborators they're trying they're going to have to try to get out as well at the same time you've got refugees that are trying to cross over into the ukrainian side so they can get out of the fighting and all of that friction makes those lines of communications much much worse and so that's the reason why you can't really move material is because you're trying to get your people out and they're going to end up having all sorts of problems with that friction that's going to be going on uh, internally as, you know, as, as the Ukrainians keep pressing ahead. And it doesn't look like the Ukrainians are ready to stop. As of right now, they're not, they're not consolidating their positions. They're still moving forward. And that may continue for some time. So that is another great uh, story to watch. Uh, and Jazz had something about that this morning. We, we've, we were going to have a full slate of... of of um, 
posts up today. I mean, we're going to have everybody working today. It's the first day that we're going to have everybody working at the same time. So we're going to have tons of content. You got to check into all of these things. I know that you're really going to enjoy it. Stay tuned for a little message on how you can subscribe to our VIP and VIP Gold programs, become members, and support the independent media on the right. Thanks for watching The Ed Morrissey Show. We'll be back tomorrow. Thank you for watching and listening to The Ed Morrissey Show podcast. Be sure to subscribe at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube to get alerted as soon as new episodes get published. You can support The Ed Morrissey Show and Hot Air's VIP reporting by becoming a VIP member, too. Visit hotairvip.com and use the promo code SAVEAMERICA, all one word, for 40% off your membership. Choose VIP Gold and gain membership to access to all of the town hall sites. 